Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. In this episode, you're going to hear about tobacco control from a few different angles in conversations with a couple different people. First, we spoke with Jeff Drope. Uh, Dr. Drope is our scientific vice president of economic and health policy research here at ACS. His team works kind of at the nexus of, of public health and economic policy making. So looking at tobacco control and other issues from a bunch of different angles. We first spoke with him maybe four or five weeks ago before kind of the world went sideways with COVID-19. And in that conversation, we talked with him about tobacco farming. So we just spoke with him again um, in a follow-up conversation about kind of tobacco use in the age of COVID-19. So in today's episode, you're going to hear both of those short conversations. You're also going to hear from Alex Lieber. He is a senior scientist here at ACS on Jeff's economic and health policy research team. So Alex um, had a paper come out yesterday on e-cigarette manufacturer Juul and how their sales recovered within weeks following a, a dip after the company withdrew some flavored products from stores, um, eventually surpassing sales from before the change. Um, and he's going to talk with us about that paper. Um, but before we get into those conversations, I just wanted to remind you all that cancer doesn't stop and neither does ACS. We are doing everything we can to help cancer patients and their families during what's a really difficult time. It's a difficult time for everybody, but it's just an especially difficult time for cancer patients. Uh, please do what you can to, to help. You can visit cancer.org uh, to support us and to find some very helpful resources for cancer patients and their families. Okay, let's join the conversation between Jeff Drope and our colleague, Dr. Susanna Greer as they talk about tobacco use in the age of COVID-19. Hey, Jeff. Welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Susanna, under the circumstances. How are you? Oh, thanks for asking. And um, again, as you said, doing fine under the circumstances. The last time you and I talked was prior to the pandemic really coming to the United States prior to our American Cancer Society global headquarters shutting down. In fact, I think it was that same week. So we're in a very different situation now, which is why I really wanted to have an opportunity to chat with you. And I'm grateful that you're going to spend a few minutes with us this morning. Thanks for having me back. When we last chatted, we had a really interesting conversation where you helped us to understand the global implications of tobacco farming. And I'd love it if you would help us to nest that conversation around tobacco, tobacco usage, cessation, and smoking with where we sit now, which is in the middle of a global pandemic. So I guess let's just start with help us to understand, does smoking increase the likelihood of contracting COVID-19? So that's a great question, Susanna. And the short answer is we don't know. There's mixed evidence, to be clear. And I think the main reason that a lot of people thought that this was the case was because the early reports out of China uh, were that this was affecting men, certainly in terms of, of hospitalizations, which was what they were using as a measure typically, that men were disproportionately represented uh, more. And so they hypothesized that this had to do with the fact that male prevalence of smoking is so much higher in China than for women. It's very low for women and very high for men. Um, however, we're actually seeing similar rates in other countries. Um, certainly, I've seen the, the, some data from Italy that suggest uh, a similar, even greater breakdown of more men than women, uh, even though smoking rates are very similar between men and women, or certainly much closer between men and women in Italy. So in terms of contracting COVID-19, really hard to say at this point. So slightly different question. What are the effects of smoking on COVID-19 outcomes? This is a, this we have more, we have more uh, data and probably are able to make some, some causal links a little bit better 
the data more strongly support the idea that COVID-19 is is certainly, uh, for smokers, the outcomes are, are, are worse. If we think about this, the underlying logic of this link is that smoking is an established risk factor for respiratory infections, including the flu, because it weakens the immune response that people can mount against any type of, of viral infection. Um, so in theory, we, we expect that this is likely to be the case with COVID-19. We also know that smoking is a very well-established risk factor for, for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, and, and heart disease, which we know are pretty clearly risk factors for having more severe illness from COVID-19. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. It's complicated. And it is. I, I think your answer to my next question is going to be complicated as well, which is, is this a good time to try to quit smoking during the middle of this global pandemic? It, it is a really great question. And I guess I'm going to give you a uh, guarded answer. Um, and let me preface it by saying that there are always immediate and large benefits of quitting smoking, no matter when we do it. So it's a, if you will, it's always a great time to quit smoking, right? And, and it's possible that these benefits apply now more than ever. So we don't have direct evidence yet that quitting can help people avoid more serious outcomes if they happen to get COVID-19. Uh, but we do know that there are some health benefits that occur quite quickly after quitting. For example, there are rapid improvements in blood carbon monoxide levels and the functioning of our respiratory tract cilia. Those are those tiny little hairs in the airways that help to keep, to keep things clean. And we also know that there are, are slower, but still um, measurable improvements over time, um, fairly, fairly quickly in immune function. So we hypothesize that all of these improvements could potentially help people who get COVID-19. So I think my answer is yes. I think there are, it would help. Uh, uh, the magnitude of that help is, is not clear yet, um, but, but there is certainly some compelling logic to this. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to have, offer a caveat that quitting is really hard, and it's particularly hard for many people when they're under enormous amounts of stress. And I would say that this is one of the most stressful times in recent human history. So I guess there are two things here. If, if you want to quit, that's great, and it's probably going to help you. If you tried and you can't, you shouldn't feel bad. If you feel like you can't right now, you shouldn't feel bad. And those folks should not be stigmatized in any way. Um, quitting is really hard in the very best of circumstances. But I do want to add that right now, quit lines are going still. There are all sorts of supports available. If you go to our cancer.org um, page and, and look for quitting, there are some really great resources available there. You'll be pointed certainly to CDC's resources as well. Um, we've got some new things coming at ACS in the coming few months uh, that will help uh, smokers quit. So these types of, of, of help and assistance are, are available. And so if you do choose to quit, um, there's help out there. Thank you, Jeff. That's a fantastic message. And for some of us, the pandemic may be the motivation that we need to explore smoking cessation and gave us some great resources. But I think for all of us, your message really resonates around self-care and giving both ourselves and those around us um, a whole lot of grace right now. So, Jeff, take care. Thank you. You too, Susanna. Okay, that was actually part two of our conversation with Jeff Drope. Part one took place a few weeks ago, before the world went sideways. He spoke with us about tobacco farming and all the problematic ways it impacts the developing world. Um, Jeff's team at the American Cancer Society studies tobacco control from just about every possible angle. So this conversation could have gone in a bunch of different directions. Um, we're going to join uh, Susanna explaining why she wanted to focus on tobacco farming and why it's so important. Part of this was a little selfish because this is an area I don't know really much of anything about, despite my South Georgia relatives being tobacco farmers. I don't know anything about global tobacco farming. And honestly, I thought many of our listeners would probably be in that same boat and would be really excited to learn why Jeff has spent so much time and energy and effort in this area and what are the challenges 
and I'm really excited to hear him share his perspectives on, on how we move forward. Your South Georgia relatives have been tobacco farmers for how many generations? I would say about five. Wow. Okay. Let's just focus on you for the next hour. Can we talk? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we loop back? <laughs> okay. 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 And Joe can help us figure out something else to farm. Actually, we we have moved on to other farm to other to other not only uh, farming utilization but but other crops. Um, so we're we're taking some of what I think Jeff will. The Greer family is evolving. Share. Okay. The Greer family is evolving. So. We will continue to do so. Right on. Let's let's get into it. All right. Yeah. Jeff, you ready? I'm ready. All right. So uh, as we've discussed, much of what you do has uh, focused on the global impact of tobacco farming. And so we, we are interested to learn much more about this. But I think maybe let's just level set. So what got you interested in this area? Fair question. And I get it a lot because people say, hey, you work for the American Cancer Society. Why on earth are you... Are you studying tobacco farming? And there are, believe it or not, some good reasons for it. Our group works a lot on economic issues around tobacco control, as Joe mentioned. And several of the areas that we work on are trade policy and tax policy. And what we discovered when we were doing our research on trade and tax policy was that when we were in countries that uh, farm tobacco widely, that was all people wanted to talk about. They didn't want to talk about anything else. They didn't really even want to talk about tobacco control. They really wanted to talk about tobacco farming. And so it really dawned on us that as, as tobacco control researchers, we were missing a whole large element of this picture. And the other place I must say that we see it a lot is on the, on the global stage. So the American Cancer Society is an official observer to the uh, main treaty, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, uh, which is under the auspices of the WHO, the World Health Organization. And when we go to these meetings, they're conferences of parties and, and other working group meetings. The big issue for many of these um, tobacco-growing countries, mainly low-income countries, is tobacco farming. So we decided that there was a huge gap in this research area and that we were going to step in and try to fill it. Okay. All right. Fantastic. So you said a couple of things that really kind of piqued my interest, and that is that there are lots of economic issues around tobacco farming, things having to do with taxes and trade and policies. And uh, I'm interested, (laughs) there's a treaty that is regulatory around global tobacco trade. Um, So I think before we dive into any of that, it would be helpful for us to understand how is global tobacco farming changing? So maybe just help me understand, is this something that's increasing? Is it decreasing? Take us back over maybe the past 20 years. What's what's going on? Sure. It, It is changing. So it used to be 20, 30 years ago that the dominant players tended to be more higher income countries. Not completely, but the United States was a very large producer. There were several uh, European countries that were also large producers. And this has shifted over time. And many of the large, larger producers now are in the, the lower income, the you know so-called developing world. And, and this has really changed the shape of this industry. And what's really interesting is if you know anything about tobacco consumption, overall it is actually declining slightly worldwide. Yet tobacco production, tobacco leaf production, is increasing slightly. Hmm. So what's going on here? Well, what it, we think is going on is the tobacco industry has figured out that the higher the supply, the lower the price that they can pay for it. And we, in fact, see this. And we see lower and lower prices of, of tobacco leaf around the world. And this works really well for the tobacco companies because they make more profit. And this is, this is happening on the backs of, of frankly, incredibly hardworking but very poor farmers in many, many countries now. And we're really trying to address this. And I think probably the biggest thing that we see is that there's this false narrative being um, perpetuated by the tobacco industry. They keep telling everyone that tobacco farmers lead the most awesome, prosperous lives. And having spent a lot of time in tobacco fields all around the world, I can tell you that it doesn't look like South Georgia, which is pretty you know, comparatively prosperous when you go to rural Malawi or, or even rural Brazil what you see is not prosperity. You see abject poverty as a result of tobacco farming. What's it like? How do you mean? 
it's incredibly poor. So you see people in, you know, just to give you an example, Malawi is one country where the American Cancer Society has worked for many years on this issue and others. And what you see is a level of, of abject poverty insofar as people not having enough to eat, children not going to school because they're working in the tobacco fields, um, people who are um, food insecure because they're growing tobacco instead of food. Um, so all sorts of those types of problems. Interesting. So I, I want to circle back to, to one thing that you mentioned before is that while, to, which I, I had no idea, so while tobacco consumption globally is declining, there is a very different change in the tobacco supply, mm -hmm. where the tobacco supply is actually increasing. And in answer to Joe's question, you shared with us that that's not a super fun occupation. It's really challenging. So maybe you could could share a little bit more about what actually is that is life like for a tobacco grower in, as you indicated, in the developing world? So are these people well off? Do they, are they healthy? Are they, you, you mentioned that perhaps they were um, struggling around education. So uh, I'd, I'd love for you to uh, spell that out for us a little bit. Sure. Um, so it, it really looks different in different places, but I will say that in low and middle income countries, we're seeing a very clear pattern of tobacco farmers not leading prosperous lives. So what we see is mainly smallholder farmers, and by that we mean people with very small parcels of land. So maybe a hectare or half a hectare or, or less even, um, or to put it into uh, the other system, uh, an acre or half an acre even. How many football fields are we talking about? <laughs> maybe a football field of tobacco. And they are probably supporting a household of eight people. And imagine that the price of tobacco is somewhere hovering around $1.25 or $1.50 per kilogram, and that the yields on most of these parcels of land are very low. So they're not producing very many kilograms of tobacco in a season. I should also mention that it is incredibly labor-intensive. So we um, actually benefited greatly from two grants now from the U.S. National Institutes of Health, who have also recognized that this is a huge issue with a very large research gap and have very, very generously given us two competitive grants for this. And we have been measuring the livelihoods of these farmers. So this means going out into the field and surveying and sitting down with farmers for these surveys take two hours to complete. And we learn about every aspect of their economic and non-economic lives for that matter. And we learn all about the lives that they live. And what we see are people that work incredibly hard for very, very poor economic returns. Their children are not getting enough to eat in many cases. Oftentimes, they are not going to school because there's so much demand for their labor, their household labor, that they, they pull the kids out of school to help harvest the tobacco leaves. So I'm really interested in where you left off on sharing with us the really significantly low economic returns for these farmers. Um, I'd be interested to know, uh, what about the environmental returns? So... What's that like? How, how does tobacco farming impact the environment? It has very negative impacts on the environment. And the reason for this is several fold. One, it is very fertilizer intensive. So what we're seeing in a lot of places is that the soil that they are planting in is usually marginal because it's being planted in a lot of countries, frankly, with marginal soil. And these farmers have to augment the soil with a lot of inorganic fertilizer, which is very hard on the environment because of the runoff typically into the watershed. So it's causing massive damage in these countries. And we're being able to now um, better empirically measure this, and we are absolutely seeing unequivocally that this is happening. The other is that... Um, Beyond fertilizer, it's very pesticide-intensive. We've learned that uh, bugs like to eat tobacco, and tobacco companies don't like tobacco leaves that have been eaten by bugs. So they give lots of, um, or loan, lots of pesticide to these farmers who apply it very liberally to these leaves so they can sell it. And this, too, is having those same types of effects on the environment. It gets into the soil, it gets into the watershed, and it causes really... Um, perhaps even irreversible damage. They loan the pesticides. Yes. The so this is a very, uh, another um, very sad and, 
difficult story to tell, but what what we actually have is we have very poor farmers who do not have capital on their own. So they don't have money saved. And so as a result, at the beginning of the season, they take a loan to take on these fertilizers and pesticides, seeds, and other inputs that they need to grow their crop. And then once they take those on from a company, they are obligated then to sell their crop to that company. And there's two things going on here. One... At what price? Exactly. At what price is a great question, Joe. So they become what we in economics call price takers. So the company gets to dictate the price. And as you can imagine, it's not terribly favorable. And we have empirical evidence to show it's not favorable. And then the other thing that they do is they deduct the amount, (laughs) so-called amount, of the fair value of the inputs that they just loan to the farmer. And what we see is almost always that level is much, much more. Wow. So you spelled out some pretty negative information here. So you listed some, as you classify, irreversible damage to the environment that's driven by um, fertilizer and pesticides. So all of these negative effects are intense. Um, I I kind of want to flip the coin, though, and ask, is the damage that's done to the tobacco growers is that reversible? And I guess I'm I'm struggling to really kind of reconcile all these negatives um, with the fact that we have an increase, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, in the global growth of tobacco production. So help us ease us into understanding how this is is regulated. Isn't this regulated at, at many levels? And maybe we could start at the World Health Organization. So... In fact, it is not regulated at all. So the, the treaty that I mentioned before, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, does not regulate anything. Rather, it's a, really a set of provisions that countries, parties are obligated to follow. And the only one on tobacco farming is that they have to help tobacco farmers and others in the tobacco sector to find other viable economic alternatives to tobacco farming or working in the tobacco sector. That's the only obligation under the treaty. There's no actual regulation of tobacco farming per se. And what we actually find in most countries is that there's zero regulation of tobacco farming. Or if there is, what we're seeing in many countries is that it is actually regulated to to be a benefit to the tobacco industry, not to the farmers themselves. So yes, it's regulated, but the wrong way in my mind. Oh, it's fascinating. So, so why is that? So if, if you're a government, what challenges might you face when you are thinking about, and I think we're kind of diving in more and more close, closely to your area of expertise. So if you are a, 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 a government of one of these um, developing world countries, what challenges do you face when you're thinking about um, understanding potentially the negative impacts on the environment, understanding the impacts on the farmers, um, but but also understanding this this um, economic space? It's a really difficult space for them. And, and I have to say, I, I do actually have considerable sympathy for the difficult position they're in. So you're a government, and let's just take Zambia as an example. It's a country where we, we the American Cancer Society has worked a lot again over the years. We have worked closely with the government and we listen to what they say. And they have their own economic pressures. They're trying to find jobs for people, viable jobs for people. It's a place with not tons and tons of economic opportunity. And this is seen as one potentially viable or somewhat viable economic opportunity. And what they tell me when I visit is they don't have a lot of ready alternatives. Um, set to go. And so they will actually say to me outright, that's great, Jeff. You know, we totally hear what you're saying. We're actually seeing a lot of these same things on the ground. We're not exactly sure what to do. Can you help us? Interesting. So one of the alternatives that I've, I've read about in this space is crop substitution, which is a way to move farmers away from growing tobacco. So maybe can you share with us a little bit about how this works and what the challenges are in that particular space? It's, it's a great question, and it's not an easy answer. We have been working in these countries trying to identify what, what the crop alternatives are 
And we do find in every country there are genuine crop alternatives. Just to give you an example, in, in Zambia, we know that farmers can grow maize or corn. We know that they can grow chilies. We've actually seen that near the urban centers, if you're growing green vegetables and selling them in the city, it's a very viable uh, economic alternative. But what we're trying to imagine is how do we scale this up from a low you know, a low level of you know, a few hundred farmers to literally tens of thousands of farmers, which is the how many farmers there are in these countries. And so we're really working to try to figure out how to scale these up. And we, we know what the but what the mechanisms are. And there are things like being able to find a ready market for these for these products. So, you know, places for these farmers to sell their goods. Um, we need to help them on that front end part where they don't have money for inputs so that they're not then going to the tobacco industry for their so un <laughs> quote unquote uh, loans, um, but instead have other places to get capital to invest in their own small businesses, which is what small farms are. Um, we know that assistance to tobacco farmers in the form of helping them learn to grow other things actually is a really effective intervention. What we've learned is that most of these countries stopped those programs 10, 20 years ago in, in the face of austerity when, when they were asked to renegotiate um, oftentimes you know, very difficult um, macroeconomic conditions in their countries. So there are all of these different um, all of these different dynamics at work. And, and what we see is the tobacco industry understands them acutely and takes advantage of these situations. Oh, interesting. So I guess I have two questions then. Um, one, I don't, I don't want to leave that, but how receptive then is a country like Zambia to um, an alternative like crop substitution? Um, and then my, my second question, I don't want to forget it, is what, what is big tobacco do? How do they kind of circumvent these efforts that you really nicely described to us about um, thinking about other crops like you, you suggested maize and chiles and, and fresh vegetables are a great economic substitution and then you, you considered the economics of scale. You know, how do we help farmers find a market for these products? Um, how do we help them to learn how to grow? I mean, all those things seem to me in my naivete to say this is something a government could get on board with. So that's my first question is how receptive are governments to these um, suggested interventions and, and to help? Because as you mentioned, there were maybe similar programs that were stopped. So are the circumstances different? And then the second question would be, what does big tobacco do to circumvent these efforts? So to answer your first question, I would say that governments are in theory very receptive. They, they do want to have conversations. So when I go off to Zambia or Malawi, you might think that some guy from the American Cancer Society researching tobacco farming may not be welcome. And it's really quite the opposite, that I am very much welcomed into the, if you will, the halls of power in those places rele rele relevant to, to this specific issue. And what they want are viable solutions offered. And to be honest, we're still working on those. So the first really part of our research was establishing what was going on because there was no there was no foundation for this. We didn't really know what was going on around the world. And now we've done this research in six countries. We've just added two more and we see the same patterns over and over again. So we feel very comfortable now that we, we know what's going on. And so now we're really moving to solutions and thinking about how how we actually build larger scale solutions. And just to give you an example of something we've been working on, we've been counseling our colleagues at the United Nations Development Program, the UNDP, big UN agency that works on development issues. They totally recognize this as a problem. And so we've been actually looking at the utility of so-called social impact bonds. So actually getting investors to help us and coming up with viable solutions with many of the types of interventions that I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, these types of supply chain solutions that we've been uh, exploring. And we think there's a lot of utility here. We, Quite frankly, we just have to find some, some generous investors to help us. And we're working on that. So if anyone's listening, please call me. That's fantastic. So... Well, I, I'm, I'm absolutely for it, but what a great idea to find partners who will think about the fact that you've already done some really fantastic research to understand the challenges. Now you've moved to solutions, and now you are partnering with groups who are interested in some of these supply chain solutions. Okay, so to me that seems all 
really positive and we should be able to wrap this up and move on to one of the other many, many challenges we have in the cancer space. But you've indicated that that's not the case, that um, the tobacco industry is actually working to either against or to circumvent some of these solutions. Could you share maybe an example of how that might happen or how that might be the case? Yeah, absolutely. And I will tell you that I have faced um, outward physical hostility in some of these countries from the tobacco industry or its surrogates. So the tobacco industry is well aware of the work that we do, does not like it, obviously, and is actively working to undermine our work, either directly or indirectly. And so, for example, so the most seemingly innocuous way that they deal with this is that they have a really strong, what I would call, propaganda machine. And so everywhere we go, everybody I meet with has already met with the tobacco industry 10 times to my one time. So they invest a lot of time and resource into making sure that their narrative is the dominant one. And the difference is... I may only get 10% of, of these people's time, but I have 100% of the truth. And, and that really works in my favor. So despite these odds, I've still been able to reach these folks. But it's hard work, let me tell you. And it's relentless. So they have that going for them. And then they have, frankly, far more aggressive, um, clever tactics, I think, that they use. Um, we've seen in, in, in some communities where we work where... We'll go back to the community to re-interview the farmers, and they'll tell us they can't talk to us. And they've obviously been intimidated by the tobacco industry. Mm-hmm. So that, that is just clear to us, clear as day, because some of them will actually admit to it. And then we'll see things that look like the tobacco industry is trying to do the right thing. I'll give you an example in Malawi, where they've been helping the Malawian farmers also to grow corn. <laughs> so... The farmers, this is their staple crop. This is what they eat. This is their staple for their families. And so they will help them grow tobacco and at the same time help them grow corn. And so, of course, the farmers aren't getting help growing corn otherwise. So somebody comes along and says, I'm going to give you free, and that's free in quotations again, fertilizer for your corn. Um, it's, it's definitely free with a really big price tag. How's that sound? Um, because it's not really meant to do anything but to you know, convince the farmers that they should keep doing this, um, even though really our research shows unequivocally that it's, it's not good for them. Wow, those are some big challenges you guys are facing. So I, I guess one of the things that has come up again and again in our conversation is just this kind of thread of injustice that you have families who are relying on tobacco farming for a very low income and a very low quality of life. Um, We haven't even talked about the impacts on their own health from exposure to pesticides, exposure to tobacco. Um, But we have talked about some of the economic impacts and the impacts on education, and we've talked about the environmental impacts. I mean, the whole thing is just really hard to swallow. So I'd, I'd be interested to know, though, if you could just solve one thing related to the challenge of global tobacco growth that might put us on a pathway to progress. Um, what, what would that be? Difficult question. <laughs> so if there were one thing, I think it would be at this juncture to be able to have enough resources to really, truly do a large pilot study of some of these interventions that we know theoretically work, or we know on a maybe on a much smaller scale, we've seen them work. And we'd love to try these out on a large scale because we are convinced that we could be successful. And we feel like with a large success or large-ish success like that, we could really then start to, to turn the tide against tobacco farming and put these folks on the path to really the prosperous, healthy futures they deserve. Um, it, it sounds trite, but... I've spent time in the fields with these families and I mean, they open up their homes to our team and, you know, they, they give us their time and they feed us. And, um, it, it's almost embarrassing because they have so little and, and we have so much and y- y- they just want 
They just want the same things I think everybody wants. They want to look after their family. They want to send their kids to school. They want to have enough to eat. They want to have safe shelter. I mean, really basic things that I believe that they're being denied. So this is unequivocally a social justice issue in our minds and unequivocally an issue about people more than anything. So huge issue, I think, in terms of global public health with this whole other element of social justice um, that you can't deny. Mm. I love that. Can we do a couple quick hitters real quick? Yeah. What's the best conversation you ever had with a farmer? I think the best conversations, because you have a lot of similar conversations, yeah. it's when we take our research back into the field and represent everything. So we do focus group discussions. We do key informant interviewing. We do surveys. And then we take the results and we go back into these communities, sometimes using really neat methods like, no joke, dance and other ways to, to, to actually convey the research findings. And when we have farmers come up to us and say, I, I get this, and, and they really start to see the sort of exploitation that's been happening at their expense, and, and they get they get charged up, they get energized, and they totally see this, the central injustice to it all. That's really exciting. What's the meanest thing a big tobacco ever did to you? The meanest thing? Yeah. Um, I won't name this country or the tobacco company, but we went to visit um, uh, a leaf processing plant, and they basically chased us away with their hands on their guns telling us that we were not welcome. Um, and it was interesting because they shouldn't have known who we were, but very clearly they knew exactly who we were. And it was a little bit frightening. I, th I think that goes beyond mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> more in the space of violence. and, and but Don't tell my boss, by the way, because <laughs> I'm not sure he would let me go back to that country. <laughs> um, favorite book? Of all time? Yeah. What's the first one that comes into your mind? Oh. Or like, what's the book that you want to make sure your grandkid reads someday when you get Oh, that's older? a good question. Um, it's, a, it's a recent book that I read. Um, favorite book is a book called The Sellout by Paul Beatty. What is this? I've never heard of this. It is a. It won the Booker Prize a couple of years ago. Actually, when when they let um, U.S. authors be part of the Booker, um, I think he was the first U.S. author to win, if I'm not mistaken. It is a book about race in America, and it is at the same time the most respectful book and the most irreverent book that I've ever read. He's respectful of the struggle of race in this country, but at the same time, he's completely irreverent in the very best ways. I recommend it to everyone. It is the finest piece of literature I've ever read. Last one, scientific hero. Who's your scientific hero? Ooh, my scientific hero. I think my scientific hero is probably uh, an answer you get all of the time, but probably Einstein. I liked, I liked the way that Einstein thought. I liked the way that he um, believed in, the, I guess, the scientific method. But at the same time, he was a soulful human being. And he could see, um, sometimes in retrospect perhaps, but he could see the great things that science could do and then also the horrible things that science could do. I'm sorry, that was incorrect. Correct answer was your wife, who's also a brilliant scientist. <laughs> I'm sorry, yes. We can edit that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeff, we're going to let you get back to your day job, but I do, I have one more question. So uh, the entirety of our conversation has been about people. It's been about tobacco farmers. It's been about the work of individuals like yourself interacting with these folks. It's been about you interacting with governments. It's been about your interactions with the tobacco industry. So... If you are listening to this podcast and are interested to either learn more or to help, um, so if you're a person on the other side of this conversation, what can folks do? Great question. So, I mean, I think just being aware that there's this whole other dimension to tobacco that people don't understand. And we all know that it's bad for our health, right? That's something we've known since the 1960s, maybe even the 1950s. But what I think people don't understand are there all of these other social dimensions to it. And so I think 
it's incumbent upon all of us to try to really get tobacco out of our lives because there are all of these other negative implications of this thing that are bad. And I think that it's really a moral imperative for everybody to, to support tobacco control uh, vigorously. And I am proud to say that the American Cancer Society really does try to attack this from every angle. They really are doing this from all sorts of different, um, different viewpoints and different um, strategies. And I'm, I'm very excited that it is such a pillar of our organization's mission. Well, Jeff, we are we are grateful, as you said, that um, some guy, this guy being you from the ACS, is welcome in these countries. I mean, it's just fantastic that you're out there sharing our narrative, helping farmers to get it, um, not only to get it, but to make really substantial changes in their livelihoods um, with the goal of turning the tide against tobacco farming. So thank you and good luck. Thank you both. Okay, that was Jeff Drope and Susanna Greer, and now you're going to hear from our colleague Alex Lieber. He's senior scientist on the Economic and Health Policy Research Team, and we spoke with him about his new paper showing that Juul sales, Juul being the e-cigarette manufacturer, their sales recovered within weeks after the company withdrew some flavored products from stores. We joined the conversation as he talked about how he got the idea for the paper. So we purchased Nielsen sales data last October. We'd been in uh, negotiations with them to purchase uh, data to study taxes and the effect of Tobacco 21 and uh, a lot of other tobacco control policies at the domestic level. And so when we purchased this data, it sort of immediately jumped out to me that there had not been a paper tracking the changes in flavored e-cigarette sales with, with data that covered the rise of Juul. No one had written that yet. And we were in the middle of conversations last fall about banning the sale of all e uh, flavored e-cigarettes. So the first logical thing in our mind was, well, okay, what's the landscape of, e of flavored e-cigarette sales right now? What does it look? And so this was our attempt to just document how that changed uh over had changed over time yeah so basically you're looking at two things here right um you're looking at one the evolution of like flavored e-cigarette sales and two you're looking at the impact of their decision to self-regulate their flavors because mm -hmm. you know self-regulation that always works um but let's 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 start with the first let's start with how flavored e-cigarette sales evolved and i guess maybe start by like what do you mean by flavored so uh, our definition of flavored really means what do the e-cigarettes taste like that people are uh, consuming? Unlike cigarettes, e-liquid, the little nicotine-laced solution that people consume in e-cigarettes, doesn't taste like anything without an added flavor. So all e-cigarettes have some sort of flavor, be it tobacco flavor, which is added, mint, menthol, fruit candy, dessert, uh, cucumber, what have you. E-cigarette flavors are literally just what is it supposed to taste like? And so if, when you look at the different flavors, how, how many different flavors are there and what are the what's the breakdown in terms of sales? So there are like in the Nielsen data, we found, I think, 400 something different flavors that were tracked. People have done studies of this before and have found thousands of flavors when you look into the flavors that are sold in vape shops. Yeah. What we did is we got together and found what's, what's a reasonable way to classify all these different flavors. When we were splitting this up, we found five categories of e-cigarette flavors that we wanted to focus on. Uh, we started with fruit flavors, then we went to mint and menthol uh, and other you know icy sort of cooling flavors. Then we had tobacco flavors. In uh, to that, we also split out sweet flavors, which were non-fruit, dessert-like flavors. And then we had the category of other, which captured everything from coffee and cucumber to blue dream and pog. 
uh, or flavors I had no idea how to classify otherwise. The breakdown of these flavors over time was actually rather steady up uh, through 2017. Previously, the two most popular flavors were tobacco in first place and then mint and menthol in second. But what happened in the market was this new fangled e-cigarette called Juul came along and started promoting its own flavors. Now, Juul grew to such popularity that it began to control which flavors were actually sold on the market uh, because they attained 70% of the market share at one point. Uh, it, it meant that if uh, half of Juul sales were one flavor, they would control 30% of the market. What happened was as Juul grew in popularity, its most popular flavor became mango and it became wildly popular among its customers and we suspect uh, young people. But, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the audience or the customer yeah. base. Is it is it, I mean mango doesn't sound like something that my grandfather would be smoking, but is there data about the percentage of young people or maybe under age 21? So there has been lots of work to uh, determine what flavors do individual people prefer. And, and how does that change by age group? Now, they have found pretty conclusively that old people are more likely to light to use a tobacco flavor than young people. But they've also found that uh, older people do prefer flute, fruit flavors more than tobacco flavors and, and, and mint and menthol too. Uh, it, it, it has been a rather weird phenomenon but young people absolutely don't use tobacco flavor uh, in their e-cigarettes. That, that seems to have been a pretty conclusive finding. So we are, throughout 2017, 2018, you see the, the rise of Juul and you see the rise in popularity of <laughs> fruit flavors, mango and things. So what mm-hmm. happened in the fall of 2018? So Juul, uh, under pressure from the FDA, who was uh, very suspicious of who they were selling all of this fruit-flavored product to, Juul decided, okay, we're going to withdraw all of our uh, non-tobacco, mint, or menthol flavors from stores. Uh, We will only sell them online, and that will help us uh, not sell it to young people. That was what they declared. And then they took their fruit flavors, uh, their cream creme brulee flavor off the shelf. They took their cucumber flavor off the shelf. They took their fruit medley flavor off the shelf uh, in convenience stores. And then their sales suffered for about two months. But two months later, they had recovered all of their previous sales. The, they had simply shifted the people they were selling fruit and those other flavors to uh, onto mint, menthol, and tobacco flavors. Over the course of 2019, at least into August, sales of mint, menthol, and tobacco flavors for Juul grew to the point where they replaced all the old uh, fruit-flavored sales and then exceeded them. They were good at selling their product. And the other intervening event here, right after Juul withdrew those flavors from stores uh, in November of 2018, uh, was they accepted a partial sale to Altria. Uh, you may know it better as Philip Morris, the country's largest cigarette uh, manufacturer. And when uh, Juul accepted sale of a minority stake to Altria, one minority stake that is currently being uh, challenged uh, in federal court, they gained access to a distribution network that was far superior to their own that was previously being used to sell Marlboro cigarettes, but then was able to help Juul sell lots more Juul products. So they, in one sense, made a very short-term sacrifice of uh, their flavored pods. They then sacrificed a lot of their integrity by selling themselves to a cigarette company. And then they used that cigarette company's resources to start selling more product. 
so briefly, fall of 2018, the, under pressure from the government, the mm -hmm. Jewel brand decides to self-regulate. Um, mm -hmm. They take their fruit flavors out of stores, but they still sell them online. Mm -hmm. Sales drop a little bit for two months. You might call it a hiccup, something like that. A little that. hiccup. And then after mm -hmm. two months, sales are right back where they were, maybe a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. So what's the takeaway from all this, Alex? There's, sorry, there's one more finding at least to point out here, is that um, if you look at our figure, you'll see that fruit sales dipped uh, from over $100 million a month down to about $40-something million a month uh, by April of 2019. You then see that fruit sales double from that point to about August. And that increase was driven almost entirely by the growth in sales of the Enjoy brand, uh, an e-cigarette uh, e company that is not owned by a tobacco company, but that seems to have taken advantage of Juul's voluntary retreat from the fruit-flavored e-cigarette market and sold its own product in its stead. There were certain cities around the country where Enjoy completely replaced fruit-flavored sales uh, that Juul had been uh, responsible for just uh, a year prior. So what happened was, uh, because this was an, uh, an uh, incident of self-regulation, the market sort of did what markets do and a vacuum was left by one uh, company who voluntarily uh, seeded sales. And then another company said, okay, well, we will sell our own product. And people went, who wanted e uh, fruit-flavored e-cigarettes and purchased that other company's product. And it sort of demonstrates why uh, self-regulation doesn't always work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was going to ask you about this. Um, I guess two things. What can we take away from all of this, from everything you've described? Um, well, I think this is a prime example of the importance of government regulation. Governments can set rules uh, when they do it well that apply to whole markets and that can act in the public interest. A company like Juul has a different responsibility. It's not chartered to serve the public interest. It's chartered to serve shareholders. And so when companies act to self-regulate, contrary to the messaging that they might give out, they're not there to act in the public interest. They're there to make sure that their shareholders gain as much value as they can. This is really an example of why collective action is important to solve public health problems because i will argue very little public health good came from jewel transitioning successfully all of its fruit flavored sales to mint and menthol sales there's no reason to expect why there that would be a public health benefit alex thanks so much for your time i really appreciate it thanks so much for having me joe